0: Welcome to the Fierce Authenticity Podcast, where we're illuminating and dismantling all of the ways supremacy culture has impacted our relationships with ourselves, with source, and with others. Not just the overt ways like racism, sexism, ageism, alcoholism, and all the other isms, but also the sneaky, cunning ways you wouldn't have thought of like perfectionism, imposter syndrome judgment, burnout, the not enoughs, and the hustle to achieve. I'm your hostess, Sharani M. Batuk, and I'm a relationship therapist, leadership development consultant, and author of the book series, Fierce Authenticity. Whether you're a returning listener or you're new here, I want to extend a very warm welcome to you and invite you to connect with me through the Fierce Authenticity newsletter community. If you're ready to rise above an inherited systematic invasion rooted in fear and lack so that you can calm and refocus those energies towards reclaiming a fiercely authentic personal relationship grounded in an abundance and love that is so radiant all your other relationships are elevated with you, then this is the space for you. I invite you to visit www.fierceauthenticity.com connect to join me. I'm so excited that you're here. And now let's dive in. Welcome back to the podcast for another episode of our pre-season three review series. Now, before we start, I just want to share with you one more time my excitement that we are still currently, as of the moment of this recording and original release, in the pre-publication early supporters, early adopters, whatever you want to call it, we are still on that pre-publication to Fierce Authenticity 2.0, supremacies impact on our relationships. Now, you'll find the links with more information in the show notes, or you can visit slash on the journey to learn more and join me on this movement of elevating our message, the messages that we share here about all the fuckery that Supremacy culture has done on us and our brains, our bodies and how it shows up in our relationships and the interpersonal violence and oppression that we perpetrate against one another and ourselves and learn how to heal from that so that we don't have to repeat the past and we can do something different for our future generations so that we can actually create the world that we want to see, the world that we want our children to live in, and our grandchildren, and our grandchildren's children, and so on and so forth. Because you know that at the rate that we're going right now, it's looking pretty effed up. It's not going to look so good. And the thing is, we're at a pivotal point of time in which Change is happening. It's been happening. And I know that you're probably over there thinking, like, oh my gosh, I have to march the streets, or, you know, I don't want to get into Facebook fights with people or Instagram DM issues with people because of some stupid shit that they're saying. And you don't want to cut people out of your life, even though you hear some of the stupid shit they say. And you know what? None of that is necessary because once you learn the practices of Fierce Authenticity 2.0, once you understand what it is that has done this fuckery to your brain and how it is that you can support yourself, your future generations, and our whole entire world in healing from it, then you'll know exactly what to do in every situation so that you can live at your highest and most fiercely authentic and best Self, so that you can engage in those authentic communications, in authentic connection, in your authentic relationships, so that you can experience that deep, authentic intimacy that I know deep down inside you so desire. That authentic intimacy that is going to help us be able to see into one another, into me you see. That's intimacy. I have a mentor who shared that with me once and I absolutely loved it. So we have an opportunity to see others and let ourselves be seen. But as long as we're walking around with blinders on, the blinders that supremacy culture has put upon us, we're not going to get to experience that. And as long as we don't get to experience that, we are going to keep perpetuating the same old bullshit we see in this world. So as of this moment, the original release date of this episode, we have just a couple more weeks left of the pre-publication early supporters campaign to join on this movement to Fierce Authenticity 2.0. Visit the link in the show notes and share it with everybody that you know, sign up, share it. Let's get this message out there so that we can create the world that we want to see, the world that we know is possible. Link is in the show notes. That's www.fierceauthenticity.com slash on the journey. Come on over and join me. Alrighty. So now with that, Today, we have another review episode, another interview with a brilliant human being by the name of Dr. B. Nilaja Green. Now, Nilaja and I talk about so many deep, powerful, potent topics. I cannot tell you how many times I have listened to this conversation and I feel medicine. Literally, even as I'm saying it to you right now, I feel the goosebumps of the medicine, the salve that this episode is. When you hear the conversation between Nilaja and myself, you will hear and understand and experience what I'm talking about. There is just so much potency here, and it's powerful and beautiful and incredible, and it will help just soothe your soul. It is truly the balm and the salve that we have been looking for in a time that is so chaotic. And in a time that can leave us feeling so hopeless and not certain what it is that we can actually do. And the reason I'm sharing this episode with you is not only because of the deep, beautiful, healing messages that came through this episode, but also because we address a really important topic that is foundational for you to know about Fierce Authenticity 2.0, and that is the subject of intergenerational trauma. Now, we discussed this a couple review episodes ago in the collective trauma episode, and now we're going to dive in deeper. And this conversation between Dr. Green and I is just incredible and will blow your mind. We talked about so many things. I really highly encourage you not to skip this review episode and to really allow yourself instead to listen in and feel the medicine, even if you don't. Fully pay attention, even if you don't totally listen to the words or understand them, just let yourself be in the energy of the space, the space between she and I and this conversation that we had. Now, a couple disclaimers before we dive in. This episode was recorded really early on in my journey of learning about everything that black bodies in America have faced like on a whole deeper level and also unlearning it. So you're going to hear me use some words and phrases that today I wouldn't use in the same way. And the biggest one is when I talk about slavery and talking about slaves and slaves as property and not people. And I understand that that's how we've been taught in our collective history because that's what supremacy wants us to to know and believe. And the reality is that they're not called slaves. The people who were enslaved are not called slaves because that takes away their humanity. And it really does put them in that position of quote unquote property. And that's not what this is about. And so I do want to give you that disclaimer that when you hear me speak about some of the stuff, it's not the same way that I would speak about it today. In this conversation Nilaja and I go into talking about the enslavement of black bodies, the enslavement and the traumas of that enslavement, how it gets encoded into the DNA, how it gets passed on, how it shows up today, and so much more. And so with that, enjoy this episode, find me on Instagram at Shirani M. Batuk. take a screenshot, share this in your stories, post it on your feed, tag me, and send me a DM and let me know what happened for you. What medicine did you experience? What in you received the salve that's available here? in this conversation. So with that, I just want to say, enjoy this episode and truly let it be a miracle and a healing to you. That is my prayer and my blessing for you that this episode, and quite frankly, every episode I share, be medicine and bless you in your healing in some sort of way. Enjoy! Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I am incredibly excited to introduce you to our first guest on the podcast. She is an amazing woman. And without further ado, I'm going to introduce you. Dr. B. Nalaja Green writes, speaks, and engages at the intersections of individual psychological distress and collective sociocultural oppression. As an Atlanta-based licensed clinical psychologist, Dr. Green is certified in trauma-informed care and delivering specialized trauma treatments to vulnerable populations such as military veterans, Black women, and members of the LGBTQ community. She writes, leads workshops and trainings asking clinicians to cultivate their own introspective practice and to approach care of clients with greater cultural humility. In addition to her formal training and years of clinical experience, Dr. Green has also incorporated her love of creative writing and journaling into her clinical work. In service to the community, she created an award-winning community writing group for healers for four years in the Atlanta area. As a foundation for her career, Dr. Green received a BA in English and psychology from Georgetown University and her doctoral degree in clinical and community psychology from Georgia State University. She completed her internship and postdoctoral training at Yale University's Department of Psychiatry in New Haven, Connecticut, and she currently lives in Atlanta with her spouse and their adopted dog, Bean. Welcome to the podcast. I am so excited that
1: you are here with us today.
0: How are you?
1: I am so excited to be here. I am a little tired and also looking forward to our conversation. Thank you for having me. You're so welcome. And I understand that tiredness.
0: I just emailed my newsletter readers last night to tell them how exhausting the time is right now and the heaviness, and how I feel it in my eyes like my eye sockets are tired and my bones hurt. And gosh, This is such an important time for us to be having conversations like the one we're going to get into today. So I hear you.
1: Yeah. I woke up yesterday and I I posted on my Instagram, uh, yesterday was Juneteenth, that I felt Juneteenth in my bones, Mm. that I really felt the the heaviness of the commemoration and I, I felt like I was carrying all of the emotional weight that we've been experiencing, I would say for the past month, but really, you know, for the past half a year almost at this point. Yeah. Well,
0: and as we're going to talk about in our conversation, really for generations that we've been carrying this in our bones (laughs) and in our DNA. And before we go there, if you could give us a brief overview from your perspective of Juneteenth, because I think that might be a newer word and celebration for most of our listeners. I know for me, I had never learned about Juneteenth until this week, and I had no idea, and I had a lot of educating to do for myself about it. So could you be open to giving us a brief rundown of
1: Juneteenth and what it means to you? Absolutely. So we are in a really interesting historical moment that really feels like an opening in a different way than other similar historical moments, at least through my lifetime. When I think about Ferguson and kind of all the protests that erupted there, there did not seem to be an accompanying kind of cultural shift in the way it's happening now. So Juneteenth has been around for a long time. It really is the recognition of 250,000 enslaved people in Galveston, Texas who were told that they were free two years after the Emancipation Proclamation. And that really came because there were slaveholders in the South who were trying their best to hold on to what they considered to be their livelihood. So they did everything they could to make sure that the enslaved people did not know that they were actually free. And so Juneteenth recognizes that these folks were enslaved for two years longer than they needed to be. And there actually have been really big celebrations in Texas for a long time. But over time, the holiday kind of fell out of favor and has seen a resurgence around the country in more recent years. And this past Juneteenth probably was the most popular I have seen it um, since I have been alive. And, And so for me, it really recognizes both the importance of that transition, but it also reminds me of how much of a system slavery was and how ingrained it was in the very founding of this country, uh, which also of course leads into the conversation that we're going to have today about what it means to show up today, given where we are coming from and how today we are living remnants of that memory.
0: Yes, and thank you so much for taking the time. I think that was a beautiful, succinct definition of all the different definitions and explanations that I've heard of Juneteenth, or actually that I've read of. I think that really captures it in a succinct manner. And I feel in my body, I feel my heart sink as you share that, you know, and I feel that of two years, it was kept. From the the enslaved people in Mm -hmm. Texas, that they were actually free. Absolutely. And I think you're spot on that this is a great transition into our topic today because our country was founded on these injustices. And Mm -hmm. that is why we see such systemic problems in our country today. And and I want to say plaguing our country really. And I love how recently people have been saying, we have two pandemics currently. We Mm -hmm. have the COVID pandemic, and then we have that deeply, deeply structural pandemic of racism Mm
1: -hmm. and the
0: systemic racism piece. And so I think this is such an
1: important conversation for us to be having. Agreed. I have opinions about... Racism as an epidemic, racism as a pandemic, racism as an addiction. I've heard some people, particularly in the mental health community, talk about racism as a mental illness. And I have kind of thoughts about that, which we can get into in a bit. Um, I would love to get into it right now. If you are open to it, I would love
0: to get into it right now.
1: So I understand the spirit. of of those conceptualizations that when we think pandemic, when we think virus, we think, okay, this is something that's widespread. It is something that infects everyone. It's something that we have to kind of root out and try to cure. When we talk about it as a psychological disorder or pathology, um, that helps us to think about, so here is a healthy way of thinking, and here is an unhealthy way of thinking. And if we think about racism as an unhealthy way of thinking, I can see how that goes with psychopathology. The bone that I have to pick, though, with all of these different ways of conceptualizing racism is that it didn't just spring up out of the ground. It didn't just fall from the air. Mm. That racism is actually a system that is based on A a false ideology of supremacy. It is a way of intentionally separating people based on a completely random characteristic. It is race, but it could be eye color. It could be body size. There are so many other phenotypical traits that we could use, but race happened to be the one that was chosen. And so there was some intentionality to racism in the same way that there was some intentionality to colonization. Colonization didn't just drop out of the sky in the rain. There were people who came together and said, Our land is more important, and our people are more important than that land over there, and those people over there. And we have the right to go over there and conquer, and deplete, and take from those people over there. And so that's really kind of my issue with those ways of thinking about racism.
0: Thank you so much for going there and picking that bone because I've I've actually have a bone to pick with the whole racism is a mental illness. Like, no, it is not a mental illness. I'm spot on with that. And I really appreciate how you're saying this isn't just a virus that came from nowhere. This is almost like, like a Trojan horse. It was planted here and it is what founded our country. And you know it's interesting I didn't think that I would be going here today and I'm just going to go here today mm-hmm. because what I keep thinking of and and we had learned this in school and I don't know the other day I was scrolling the social media feed and I saw something but I just scrolled past it because I was just so overwhelmed with information. Mm-hmm. And then it clicked. I didn't read the caption. It was on Instagram. I didn't read the caption or anything. But then in, in a moment where all of a sudden I was sitting with the information and it clicked, three-fifths human. Right. The dehumanization of people right. based on this one phenotype, which just so happened to be the color of their skin.
1: Right. And that was written into our constitution. That's not accidental or just happened to be. I I mean, there were people who sat around and decided, oh yeah, this is what we're going to go with. And they wrote it down. Yes. Yes. And they wrote it
0: down just like that. Three fifths (laughs) human. Yeah. Like we'll grant them privileges, but they only count as three fifths of a human. And I want to be really clear so our listeners know what we are talking about. When I am saying three fifths human, I am speaking about black bodies.
1: Yep. Yep. And to be clear, the three fifths compromise wasn't actually even about the enslaved people, the three fifths compromise was really about. States wanting to have enough representation in government. And so in order, particularly for the Southern states to have enough representation to compete with the Northern states, they wanted to count their enslaved peoples in order to boost their um, standing with the electoral college. So it wasn't even about giving people privileges or recognizing them as human. It it was a, a, a compromise because on the one hand, if we talk about enslaved people as property, We can't make them fully human because then they're not property. Then we have to treat them like they're human. Then we have to give them human rights. So we can't do that, but we also need extra bodies so we can increase our power. So how can we think about this in a way where we can still retain control over these non-humans, but also make them human enough for our purposes? And so then we get the three-fifths compromise.
0: Wow. (laughs) Wow. Thank
1: you, because
0: this is not what they teach us in our history books. No, it's not. No. It's not. Not at all. So thank you for taking the time to, to share that with us. And, and I think, again, it comes back to the dehumanization of a people. And I think you name it really well when you say they were considered property. Yes. And they were never considered people. And by they, again, Black bodies were never considered people. They right. were considered property. Which brings me to some of the deeper depths of our conversation around the intergenerational trauma pieces. Yeah. And how we carry this with us. And I'm saying we, even though I am neither black nor white, I am an immigrant to -hmm. this country and I got to come here thanks to all the civil rights movements of the 1960s that our black bodied brothers and sisters did. So I wanna take full ownership of that. And I'm saying we in terms of the collective we, because even though this exists here in America, it really exists anywhere and everywhere that was touched by colonization. Absolutely. Because where I come from, it was a British colony Mm -hmm. and we have very similar issues. Absolutely. And so share with us a little bit more when we're saying intergenerational trauma, what does that mean?
1: So intergenerational trauma can also be thought of as ancestral trauma. And the simplest way of talking about it is when the experiences of past generations show up in the present, right? So you have a child who is showing trauma sequelae without having gone through their traumatic experience. And so there were uh, studies that had been done looking at survivors of the Holocaust and kind of looking at the generations following that. The Holocaust lasted 1933 to 1945, 1946 about. And studies had found that there was something different about the the surviving generations, that there were things that were different in emotional expression, there were behavioral changes, there were relationship disruptions. Uh, But what they also found, and more genetic studies are beginning to find, is when children are exposed to traumatic events, it changes their genes. And so epigenetics tells us about gene expression. So if my genes are changed, it means my children are inheriting my changed genes. So beyond the behavioral, emotional, uh, cognitive space, there is a physiological change that is now happening once you have exposed someone to trauma. So if you think about how those changes can show up in the generations following the Holocaust, imagine what happens when you have enslaved people who have endured slavery for hundreds of years. Hundreds of years. And we often talk about slavery as the seminal atrocity for African-Americans, that after slavery, like, It was all good. And like, yeah, there was segregation, but it wasn't as bad as slavery. So like, what's the big deal? Why do we keep talking about this? But what I think that argument doesn't recognize is that following slavery, we also have a three-year period where at least 500 African-Americans are killed, mostly by white people, because they are trying to send the message that although you might be free in paper, you are not free in any kind of social way. And then, of course, we have the period of lynchings and the hundreds and thousands of black bodies that were lynched. You don't have to lynch a million people in order to send a message. You can lynch two people, hang their bodies in the town square. That's a strong enough message. So it isn't just about the quantity. It is also about the symbolism. It is also about the overt and covert violence against Black bodies. It is also about that segregation wasn't just separation. Segregation was also terrorizing on Black communities. Segregation was also disenfranchisement. It was removal from resources. And there are people alive today who experience segregation. So we don't have to reach back hundreds of years before in order to really have a sense of what it means to live in a state of of terror that can then cause traumatic responses. So when you have black folks who are hypervigilant, when you have black folks who are just kind of more suspicious or more distrusting of the medical establishment, for example, we don't have to go very far to find the Tuskegee experiment. Mm-hmm. We don't have to go very far to look at Henrietta Lacks. We don't have to go very far to know that even today, African-Americans are overdiagnosed with disorders like psychotic illnesses. We we don't have to go very far to see the ways in which these traumatic experiences still exist. So you have this generation that has grown up from other generations who have experienced trauma, and then this generation is experiencing their own.
0: Yeah, I think that's so powerful the way you break it down for us. In episode two of the podcast, uh, it was on collective trauma and I spoke about the mice study that was done, the cherry blossom study. And so I love hearing the additional studies that you are sharing with us today. And with that said, it makes me think of Mr. Resma menicum's book, Mm -hmm. my grandmother's hands. And I had not even considered this until a few weeks ago when I read the article that introduced me to his work, and I will make a link in the show notes to his work, is persistent traumatic stress disorder. Mm -hmm. Because post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, like most military veterans. Post means it happened and it's done. You go into a car collision and you walked away and you get some therapy and you move on. But for black and brown bodied individuals in this country... Because of the history that you just shared with us. And that was just a snippet of history. That was your 30-second highlight reel (laughs) of the history. And because of that, that this trauma is not post or in the past for them. I've had clients tell me of the terror they feel when their black-bodied men leave the house to travel, and when they don't hear from their Their partner, Mm -hmm. how it reignites that terror of, is my man alive? Yes. Yes. So you're absolutely right that we don't have to go very far.
1: And if we were talking about war in working with veterans, I, I often do have to do some reality testing. So when, particularly, combat veterans are worried about there being trash on the side of the road, because in The Afghanistan war, sometimes trash actually turned out to be an IED. So there are combat veterans who they come back and I'm in Atlanta, so they're driving along the Atlanta highways and they see trash and they go into a panic. And so I often have to do some reality testing. Well, how likely is it to be an IED? Uh, You know, what's the difference between being in Atlanta versus being in Afghanistan? That can happen. Once an experience is over. But when we are talking about walking outside of your door and going for a run in a neighborhood that maybe you think is safe, but it turns out you're going to be cornered and shot, you are in a position where you don't actually know where the danger is or who the danger is coming from or who you can trust and who you can't or how likely it is that you're going to be able to come home or not. And so the amount of ambiguity can cause such stress, such stress, that even if nothing happens, a police car just has to get behind you, not even pull you over, but just get behind you to cause panic. And part of that is an intergenerational trauma response. Because somewhere along the line, whether it was your ancestor or the ancestor of the person next to you, that police car pulled behind them and they didn't make it home that night.
0: Right. Which is exactly what we're seeing on TV and on media today, is we're looking and seeing. And of course, Black and Brown communities already know this. We already know that There might be an interaction and your loved one doesn't come home. And this is the first time, though, for a lot of people that they are starting to see that this isn't just imagined, right? Like you were saying, reality testing with your veterans that you work with, that the reality actually is, oh, no, it's still happening.
1: Right. 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 It just happened uh, this past weekend in Atlanta. A guy shot... He was drunk at a Wendy's, sleeping in his car, not creating a ruckus, not making anyone uncomfortable, sleeping in his car, and apparently spoke to the officer for like 30 minutes. This is a cooperative individual. How is it that that cooperative individual then ends up dead? And so someone says, well, you know, he took the cop's taser. Yep. And ran away. Who was he dangerous to at that point?
0: Right, right. Oh, you're bringing up such big, <laughs> big feelings in me. Such big feelings because I watched a portion of the video. I don't, I don't watch the news usually. And recently I'll, I'll check in every now and again just to feel the temperature of what's going on. And I saw that video. Yeah. And I asked, I turned around, and I asked my husband, Why? 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 And if they were going to shoot, which is not even an appropriate response, but if they were, why would you shoot someone to fatally injure them? And I'm sorry, when I say fatally injure, I mean to kill them. Yeah. Yeah. There's no reason for it.
1: Yeah. So I appreciate how you brought up Resma's book and how you talked about big feelings coming up. Because I actually had not really thought about his term somatic abolitionism. Mm-hmm. I had not even heard of such a thing, I think, until earlier this year, where I'd gone to a virtual conference looking at embodied trauma. And I think that he does a really good job of talking about how trauma really lives in our bodies. It is very much a visceral response. And I think this is really brought home for people who have experienced traumatic events that have been visceral. So a lot of the folks that I work with now have experienced military sexual trauma. And, and many of them experienced sexual trauma before they even got into the military, which is a whole other conversation about trauma in our society. Yeah. But. One of the ways they feel trauma in their bodies is when someone touches them. And it doesn't even have to be a sexualized touch, right? It doesn't have to be a touch on a particular part of the body that was traumatized. It could be a hug. It could be a touch on the shoulder. It could be a a touch on the neck. There is a a body response. And I, I think that we have an easier time thinking about that when we... Think about traumas that are directly on the body in that way. But we have a harder time thinking about that when the trauma is more collective, is more kind of in the air. And I think it's important for us to pay attention to the reality that racism, colonization, isn't an outside external experience only. It is very much an internal experience. Very, It is something that you feel.
0: Yeah, and I can I can really resonate with that a lot actually. A couple weeks ago, I live in San Jose. I'm actually based in San Jose, California. And when the first set of protests began after Mr. Floyd's death, that first weekend, the police in San Jose responded in a militaristic way. They actually shot their own anti-bias trainer and injured him with their rubber bullets. He was trying to deescalate the situation and they shot their own anti-bias trainer. Oh, the irony. Yes. Oh, the irony. And of course this was a black bodied man yeah. that they shot who was doing the anti-bias training work. And, So our our city, San Jose, went on curfew. Mm -hmm. So now we're already on lockdown because we're in one of the strictest counties in Santa Clara County. We haven't experienced the relief that the rest of California or other states have. And I'm not going to talk about my thoughts about that. I'm doing my part. And so I'm following these orders and I'm staying home as much as I can and only going out for essentials. And it was like, okay. And yet that activated trauma in my husband. Because we come from a country where military coups were a reality, right? And I didn't understand when he was like, this whole being on um, lockdown is triggering memories for him in his body Mm -hmm. of when he was a kid and he was huddled up with the women because he was a child, huddled up with the women, and there was a bucket of rocks that if there were Mm -hmm. any intruders, he had to throw them, you know, they were throwing and so it really brought up that, that trauma for him. And I, I didn't fully understand it until two months later when we went on curfew, when mm-hmm. it's one lovely evening and I'm said to him, let's go for a walk. Let's finish our dinner and take the dog for a walk. That sounds like a really nice thing to do. And then I was like, oh my gosh, but it's 7.30 and curfew starts. So we have to like go like now. and it, and then I viscerally felt in my body what my ancestors experienced. And when I say ancestors, I'm talking about my parents. I was three when I came, so I don't know if I actually experienced it, but I know that this is my parents. Like, So when I'm talking ancestors, I'm talking about my parents. Right and right. my grandparents and that's when i understood how our current circumstance and what we're seeing in our country today how it is triggering all of my own ancestral traumas
1: yes absolutely and so uh, one of the reasons i think it's so important to have this conversation and i'm grateful that you're having this conversation is one i don't think we talk about it enough when it comes to racism when it comes to colonization for example i think that when people talk about experiences like the holocaust and then they talk about intergenerational trauma that for some that's an easier connection to make mm-hmm. and maybe because of the histor- it's closer in time maybe it's for other kind of cultural and societal reasons but uh, but i think that There's something that feels a bit more nebulous or ambiguous or distrusting about thinking about intergenerational trauma in these ways, in these particular circumstances. But I think it's really important that we're talking about it. And also that we recognize that racism isn't just about the Black and brown bodies. It's also about the white body, That, that racism also lives inside of white bodies, and part of the way racism continues is it, in some ways, convinces the white body that it's not their problem. They're not really feeling it. It's not them. It's the, the black and brown folks. They need to heal. And maybe we can have compassion in their healing. Or maybe we can feel guilt in service of their healing. Or maybe we can do something in some way to help their healing, and. One of the things I think it's important for us to to do is to complicate that and to actually say, well, well maybe there's some healing that y'all need to do. Maybe we need to think about how supremacy, it not only oppresses the oppressed, but it also oppresses the oppressor. It dehumanizes the oppressed, but it also dehumanizes the oppressor. Maybe we need to think about that. Maybe we need to think about how there have been certain aspects of history that have been shielded from you. Let's expand how we think about who is being impacted by racism and colonization and where the healing needs to happen.
0: Yes. And I would love to hear you say a little bit more about that because this oppressor as oppressed thing is a mind trip. And I talk about it in the drama triangle and there is a deep potency here to help white bodied individuals wake up to the fact that they too have this experience in their bones. And so I would love to hear you elaborate a little bit about that.
1: So I know people say this in a cliche way, and I'm not saying it in a cliche way. I'm actually saying it as a avenue to see the next thing, but my best friend is white and she's Jewish. And we actually have spent we've been friends for many years and we've spent many years trying to have honest conversations about race and culture and they're hard to have. And they're hard to have with people you love because I am invested in my relationship with her and she is invested in her relationship with me. So we don't want to hurt each other, but both of us are coming to the relationship with experiences that we may not know how to talk about with one another, that we don't really have language for, and so we may end up causing pain when we don't mean to. In one of our our conversations, she introduced me to a book called Learning to be White. In Learning to be White, the author's name is Tandeka. Learning to be White is really about the ways in which, because race is a social construction, it's not only a social construction for black and brown people, it's also a social construction for white people. That when we go back to the 1600s, it wasn't really a thing. White people—that wasn't a thing. There were Irish people, there were Italians, there were Polish. They weren't really white people. The idea of white people is a historical construction that also creates a, a class divide, and race serves as an easy marker of a class divide. So, in order to learn to be white, there are some things that have to be sacrificed. There are some things that have to be let go of in order to be a part of this privileged class. And part of what that means and part of what is sacrificed is your connection to other parts of humanity. Yes.
0: Yes. As soon as you said certain things have to be sacrificed, I immediately was like, oh my God, our humanity and parts of our humanity. Yes. So I love the way that you are saying it, our connection. To these other parts of humanity. Yes, yes, yes.
1: So with that, I think it's important to also. So, for example, uh, I was in a, a staff meeting. I've been avoiding Zoom staff meetings during this time, but I was in a staff meeting, and it was a staff meeting where the black and brown folks were sharing their experiences in a really emotional way, and many of the white folks, beyond expressing compassion, were silent. They did not have language. And so part of what can happen with racism is the silencing of white people, not really knowing how to talk about their own racial stories because we all have them. We all have racial stories. I was friends with another white woman. She was a woman at the time, we were both girls. And, you know, we were just friends. And then her grandmother had something to say about us being friends. So I learned something, but she learned something too. There was something that she was being taught about what was acceptable and what wasn't acceptable, who she could connect to and who she couldn't connect to, what, how she could be in the world and how she couldn't be in the world. That can be quite painful. So let's talk about that.
0: I'm so curious to hear more because we're seeing that freeze from a lot of our white bodied friends and it's spot on what you're saying. Nobody knows what to say or how to say it. And actually episode one of the podcast was you're going to mess it up, but just have these conversations anyway. And I'm so curious to hear from you, how can we? Because I think there is this fear that white people or even Even myself, I was afraid to have these conversations because, again, I am a brown immigrant woman and Mm -hmm. I don't totally understand how to have these conversations either. I'm learning just as much as the next person. Mm -hmm. And so I guess it's more
1: to elaborate on how,
0: yeah, just to elaborate on that.
1: So I I think many kind of anti-racist programs and, and teachers and also Resma, I, I say that like I, I know him personally. But one day I will meet him. Yes, Maybe he will listen to your podcast, and he'll be like, "I need to meet them. They're talking about me a lot. I need to meet them." Unless you, unless you have met him, I just assume that you don't. No, know. Know, I have not met him. One of the things that I've heard those trainers say, and I also have heard him say, is the importance of affinity groups. Mm-hmm. Uh, and affinity groups are really groups of. Individuals that contain a particular characteristic in common and in the case of talking about racism the characteristic is is normally race So an affinity group might be a group of white-bodied individuals Another affinity group might be a group of black-bodied individuals or sometimes it's black and brown people together Because although you have a different story than I have there are ways in which our stories converge differently than if we were in a group with other white bodied individuals. Mm -hmm. Because when people see you, and when people see me, they think different things than when people see a a white woman walking in. Because of our associations, it's not even a, a conscious kind of thing. But there has been a different social construction of Black women. There's been a different social construction of immigrant women. These are mm-hmm. different things. So one of the things uh, that I've heard uh, trainers talk about and also Resma talk about is the importance of affinity groups for the, the purposes of locating responsibility in its proper place. Mm-hmm. So when a white person says... Yeah, I had this black friend when I was younger and my mother told me that I could play with them, but they couldn't come into the house. And I had to deal with what that meant. That lands differently in a group of white bodied individuals than in a group of black or brown bodied individuals Mm. where that pain lands is different. And so one of the, the thoughts or suggestions is that when you have those conversations, have it with other white people first allow the container of that group to help you manage that pain allow the container of that group to help you manage your confusion that's not mine that's not yours we have different things to manage we have we have different stories to heal from that's your experience and story that belongs in that group so as white people begin to become more conscious of their own racialized uh, constructions and ideas I encourage them to do it with each other first
0: Mm.
1: not only because it's important to educate and have that conversation with each other but because there's some stuff that y'all need to deal with that we don't need to deal with (laughs) I I, I don't know a nicer way to say that (laughs) yeah well and I
0: think that's the really real Truth. That is a very real truth. And thank you for breaking it down and making it so simple, this affinity groups. I'd seen that actually where someone was posting that they're starting a study group and mm-hmm. that they were doing different groups. It was going to be white-bodied individuals in one study group. Mm-hmm. And if there were enough to separate the black and brown bodies, they were going to separate those two. Otherwise, it was going to be black and brown bodies together. And that makes sense to me. And actually, it feels really like a good way to start those conversations. In terms of doing it within your own groups first, healing through that stuff first. And so when they show up to the conversations with each other, they're not bringing the whole mess with
1: them. They're bringing the message. Exactly. Exactly. That, That was perfectly stated. Exactly. Yes.
0: Yes. Thank you thank you, I'm in a 12-step program, and they say you take the mess to your sponsor and the message to the meeting. Yes. And it sounds like that. Taking your mess to each other in your affinity groups and taking the message outside when interacting with each other.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. James Baldwin, who I have recently become a very big fan of, He has a lecture, a debate with William Buckley in the 1960s, I think. And it's this debate that is taking place in in London. And it's a a group of well-appointed, young, white, British professionals. And the debate is, has America advanced at the expense of the Negro? And William Buckley is like the representative of kind of the conservative intellectual in America. So they're having this conversation. One of the things that Baldwin talks about is he says, racism is not the the responsibility of black and brown people to solve. We did not create this. We didn't make this up. Like y'all came up with this. So it is not our job to solve this for you. And I think when we talk about affinity groups, what can happen when we haven't yet done that healing separately is we come together and and we mix up responsibility and accountability and caretaking because we all have been socialized in a particular way. Many black and brown people have been socialized to take care of white people. We don't want you to feel bad and you no, know, don't feel guilty. And let me help make this better for you. And so now we have centered you and whatever healing we need to do takes a back seat. Yeah.
0: Oh, and I am so glad to hear where the original person who spoke that comes from. And I'm assuming that's the original person, actually, because I've heard that over the past couple weeks Mm -hmm. as I myself as a brown woman have gotten so wrapped up in the anti-racism work and I may have overdone it a little bit and shot out my own system as I am also dealing with my own ancestral stuff coming up. And I had a mentor share with me. She said, Sharani, and she's a black-bodied person. She says, Sharani, racism is not black and brown people's problem to solve. It is white people's problem to solve. So go let them solve this problem while we continue to let our light shine.
1: Yes. Yes. We have other work to do. That's not about that. (laughs) Yes. Yes.
0: And so with that, I'm curious, it feels like affinity groups is a really great action step that listeners can take? And to wrap it up and bring it home, what are actionable things that listeners can do as they are doing their anti-racism work, as they are waking up to collective and ancestral traumas that they have held in their bodies most of the time unknowingly? What are some practical, actionable steps that listeners can take?
1: So I, I think fundamentally we have to be open to discomfort that we are in a historical moment that is amplifying atrocity in many ways. And when that happens, we might want to hide or try to find quick solutions. And this is hundreds of years in the making. We are not going to unmake it in a week, in a month with one law, with one amendment. That's not how this is going to happen. No matter how, motivated people are right now. So I I just, I want to offer that, that, you know, Bayo Akomolafe, I think his name is, he is a philosopher, clinical psychologist, this brilliant Nigerian mind. He says, times are urgent. We must slow down. And the first time I heard that, I was like, that sounds beautiful, but I don't know what that means. <laughs> but then I I thought further about it and I I was paying attention to, when I go on my social media feeds, there are all these anti-racist reading lists and anti-racist parenting groups and anti-racist this and anti-racist that. And so now I have like 75 more books to read and 15 more podcasts to listen to and five more presentations to create. So I have all this work to do, but If all we're doing is this external work and we are not sitting and doing any of the internal work, all of the external work, A, will burn out really quick. B, we can start to create a mess Mm. because our internal stuff isn't worked on. As therapists, we know this. We know that if there are, are unresolved hurts and wounds, Uh, Let's say in the relationship space. Right. If I haven't dealt with what I need to deal with from my past relationship, guess what's going to happen in my new one. Right. It's the same thing. So we have to recognize that the most important work is internal work and we have to do it because if we don't do it, we are going to show up and not be useful. We actually might be harmful, even if our intentions are good. So doing the internal work, sorry, being open no, to this. I was this-
0: going to say, I, I love that. And I, if I can jump in here, yes. I love how you're saying if you're just doing all this surface level stuff, it's going to be, you didn't say it this way, but the image I'm getting is like some cheap plastic band-aid that's not actually gonna stick. It's not it's not a quality medical device that is actually going to help heal the wound. It's just going to be something you slap on, kind of like cheap lipstick. You know, you can't put lipstick on a pig and not call it a pig, right? Like it's still a pig if whether you put lipstick on it or not. And and that's that's what I'm hearing you say is that without the inner work, which We know that as therapists, without the inner work, none of this is going to stick. It's all going to be just cheap, fast. You know, it makes me think of empty carbs. It's all just going to be a whole bunch of empty carbs that
1: makes a bigger mess. Yeah. And it may make you full for the moment, but it's not nutritious. Yes. Right. It doesn't nourish you. Yes. So, you know, we can go into 75 million action steps. But start inside first, be open to discomfort, have conversations with people who are like you, and have the conversations go beyond the cognitive level. Mm. This is not about intellectual debate only. We need to have conversations that go into the emotional space and learn something about your history, learn who your people are. Yeah. I think our stories from the past can really help us. Understand what our intergenerational trauma looks like, what it means to be the descendant of someone was, who was enslaved, but also what it means to be the descendant of someone who held slaves. Mm. Because that's a real thing that somehow seems to be lost in the conversation, that slavery kind of just happened and there are the descendants of slaves, but where are the people who are the descendants of the slaveholders?
0: Yeah, I know that I said we'd wrap it up and I just... <laughs> One more question pops in as you shared that last piece, and this is something that I've heard from friends in my circle, and I've also seen it on online forums. What about biracial individuals that are both oppressor and oppressed in their DNA?
1: Yeah. I don't think the work is is different in that the the internal piece is, is important, figuring out How do you live with the reality of conflicting histories? Mm. So I don't identify as biracial. Both of my parents were African-American. My grandparents were African-American. But you can look at my skin tone and know that somewhere along the line, there there was some introduction of European blood. Now, whether that introduction was by force or voluntary, I don't know. But if we go back far enough, the chances that it was by force are pretty high. So I think all of us have to contend with the reality that we are made up of many different bloodlines and many different stories. So as we recognize that we are full multidimensional human beings with many stories, we have to choose how we will reconcile them. It doesn't mean we have to choose, I'm only going to pay attention to one part of my identity and not another. But it does mean we have to be conscious about how we reconcile those stories and then how we show up in the world based on how we are reconciling those, those stories.
0: That makes sense. And thank you for going there because, again, we're all oppressor and oppressed yes. within us at the same time yes. anyway. Yes. Yes. Nilaja, thank you so much for taking time to be in conversation with me and our listeners today. Where can listeners find you? if they want to learn
1: more from you or about you, where can they find you? I am on Instagram Dr. B Nilaja. I admit that I am not active on social media every day the Screen in my face all the time and then the Zoom all the time. I need a break from these things, but I'm active fairly uh, often, several times a week. Uh, You can also reach me at my website, www.standpointtherapyandconsulting.org, where you can kind of reach out to me that way. My email address, my um, office phone number is there. I also engage in activities around Atlanta. So you might see me speaking on a panel, being at a community event, sharing. Uh, what I know, and also learning from the community in different spaces. I try to always remember that our work as healers, and I consider my work primarily as a healer, even before I call myself a psychologist, that our work as healers means that we always have to be open to learning, that we always have to be curious, and not believe that we have gotten to the place where we have all the wisdom and we know all the answers. Then we stop growing.
0: Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much again for joining us. It has been such a pleasure and a gift to have this conversation with you. And I know we can go on and on and (laughs) on. And we already have a couple other conversations that we are throwing around. I would love to have you back on the podcast in the future. So just thank you again for being with us.
1: Thank you so much, Shirani. I really appreciate you not only giving me this platform, but having this conversation and thinking about the the urgency of this conversation and sharing it in such a way that hopefully people can ingest it with, with compassion for themselves because we have to have compassion for ourselves. We can't get caught up in self-judgment that stops our uh, enlightenment. We have to have compassion. And so I hope that your listeners can hear the importance of compassion as we do this hard work together. Because if we don't do this hard work together, it it won't stand, it it won't sustain. So thank you so much for for having the the foresight um, and the connectedness. to to have these conversations now. Thank you. And
0: I take... No credit. I got divine orders to do this and to launch this podcast. I had to throw my whole plan out the window and and take the divine orders. So thank you for seeing that in me. And I'd love to let the listeners know that if you are enjoying what you're hearing, please subscribe to the podcast, share it with your friends, your family, share it with everybody you know, and also rate and review the podcast so that other people can find out about these really important conversations that we're having here as well. I want to take a moment to honor and acknowledge the amazing support team that helps make this podcast possible for you. Starting with Diego Velazquez, our podcast editor and the talented artist who created our custom music. Ana Olvina, my wonderful assistant who creates all of our beautiful graphics and the transcript of every episode, which you can find over at www.fierceauthenticity.com. Biana Sandich, who writes our amazing show notes and does it so well that I bet you couldn't tell it wasn't me the talented Jillian at Epoxy Studios, whose photography is our cover art and pretty much every other curated image that you see of me on social media. My husband, who puts up with me when it's 11.30 p.m. on a Sunday night and I'm like, hey babe, I gotta record a podcast episode, like right now. Is that okay? My higher power, whose divine wisdom flows through me To bring these messages to you. And last but not least, I wanna thank you, my listener, so much for listening in. If you'd like to join the podcast support team, some ways you can do so are by rating and reviewing the podcast, sharing it with everyone you know, and if possible, making a financial contribution through the link in the show notes so that you too can be part of the team elevating this podcast and making it possible to bring to other listeners like you. I'm sending you so much love, and we will be together again
1: soon.